Amen. Welcome. So grateful that you're here and those of you that are joining us online. These are surely different days that we're living in, but we have a Savior who took all of that into consideration and uh, we're grateful for his care for us. I was thinking while we were singing and April gave that one word about us who are carrying cares or burdens and Peter tells us we're to cast all our cares upon the Lord. The problem is that when we read that word care and cast, we think it means like a fishing line where you're casting it out. But the problem is when you cast out, you also draw it back in. But what he means when he says we're to cast is we're supposed to just drop it on him and let him have it and keep it for us. So these are just days that we have an opportunity to find that God's grace is more than sufficient. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. Um, Most often, those of you who have been a part with us know that I like to start a sermon with either a uh, funny story or perhaps a moving story or a question. And so this morning, like always, I would like to ask you a question. So I want to kind of get in a posture that in your own mind you're going to answer this, okay? So I need an answer from you, but you're going to think it inside, okay? This is not like where you're going to speak it out, you're going to think it. Ready? Who do you hate with every fiber of your being? Who do you hate so much that if you had heard this morning that they were dead and buried up at Warsaw Cemetery at the other end of town, when church is over, you would go and dance a jig on their grave? Too much hate? Okay. All right, let me ask you it this way. Who do you despise then? Who do you despise everything that they stand for, everything they think? Every word that comes out of their mouth makes you sick to your stomach. Who do you despise so much that if you had the choice, you would spit on their words? Still too much meanness? Okay, let me ask it this way. Who do you dislike? Who do you dislike so much that if you were never to see them again, that would be too soon for you. Who do you prefer to not be around? Maybe maybe you don't hate them. Maybe you don't despise them. Maybe you don't even want them dead because you're just too much of a Christian for that. But you really don't like them at all. And every time you're around them, they tend to push your buttons. Now, have you got somebody in mind? No, not your spouse. Cut it out. I saw you guys glancing at each other. What I have just asked you is the question that Jonah actually wrestled with throughout the story. Jonah's a unique book. It's a unique prophetic book in that it never gives a prophecy. Think about that. Jonah's one of the minor prophets, but he never prophesies. But he tells a story that is, in fact, very prophetic for us. We're in the third message in our series on Jonah. Jonah was an Israelite prophet who loved God, and I want you to hear this, because I think this could be true for some of us. He loved God but he didn't love all the people that God loved. Is that even possible? Is it possible to love God 
but not love people that God loves? Jonah was told to go to a city by the name of Nineveh, which was the capital at that time of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians were the arch enemies of Israel. Israel, and apparently Jonah, hated the Assyrians. They despised them. They disliked them. And God comes to Jonah, an Israelite prophet, and says, I want you to go and I want you to preach to Nineveh. Instead, the Scripture tells us, Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down into a ship. He went down into the belly of the ship and he took a nap. He decided that it wasn't enough to tell God no. He wanted to get on a ship and go 2,500 miles in the opposite direction from Nineveh. Well, you know the story. God sent a storm. And after they discussed what was going on and why this was happening to them, which we've all done when hard things happen to us, they found out that Jonah was their albatross. And they threw him overboard. And then the Scripture says he didn't only go down into the depths of the sea, he went down into the depths of the great fish over there. And from the belly of that great fish, we saw last week, Jonah prayed a prayer of repentance where he came back to God's heart. And I want to pick up there today. If you have your Bibles, we're reading in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, or you can look at it on your phone, or it will be up on the screens for you. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the... What's it say? The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The one who did not deserve it in any way, shape, or form got a do-over from God. When I was a kid and uh, we would play ball, you know, baseball was a big deal for us. Uh, I grew up in Waterloo, which was one of the kind of satellite headquarters of minor league baseball and little league baseball. So baseball was big. But we would practice, and when you didn't get it right, you would do it over and over and over again until you got it right. Well, God was giving Jonah a do-over, a second chance. But a lot of people have the mentality that when somebody has done you wrong, there are no second chances. They have this mentality of, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. No second chances allowed. But I want to ask you this morning, have you ever failed at anything? Have you ever fallen? Have you ever sinned? I'm not talking about a oops kind of sin. I'm not talking about a, a, a kind of drop the ball kind of failure. I'm talking about the kind of failure that's like, in retrospect, you look back and you say, what in the world was I thinking? How could I have ended up there? That kind of failure. Um, I went to Elam uh, Bible Institute at the time it was called. And by the way, we have the privilege of having with us today the new president of Elam Bible Institute and College, Fred Antonelli, and his wife, Debbie. Welcome. Glad you guys would be here. Um, but I went to Elam, and after my first year, that summer, I felt badly. 
it was so it was so overwhelming to me. I was so embarrassed. I was so ashamed that I made the decision I would never step foot in that place ever again. I couldn't face people with my sin. It was fortunate that I had a roommate who I will always be grateful for. His name was Donnie Brown. He was a little black guy back in the day when he was black, not African-American or whatever is the appropriate political speak today. But he was a little black guy, Donnie Brown. He called me at work one day. Out of nowhere, he just called me at work and said, how are you doing? And I could barely talk to him. And he said, Chris, you've got to come back. That's what God does inside of us. He redeems that which is impossible for the world. He saves us to the uttermost. And I'm so grateful that that summer he encouraged me to come back. Well, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Jonah didn't just drop the ball. Jonah blew it big time. He told God he wouldn't do what God told him to do. This is a prophet now. This is a seasoned saint who knew exactly what he was doing. You know and I know that in our lives, we need a second chance. And for some of us, if you're like me, we need a second and a third and a fourth chance. If you were to look at my life, my life doesn't look like a drag strip straight away. My life looks like a roller coaster, a modern roller coaster with all kinds of twists and turns and loops. I mean, my life has not gone all that smoothly. And I suspect that that's true for many of you today. Some of you, like Jonah, have been struggling with something that God has asked of you. Maybe it's something He's told you to say or to do, or maybe it's something He's told you to stop saying and stop doing. And you've been struggling with that for a while. But when we fail, which we all do, John tells us we ought to thank God that we have an advocate with the Father. We have a, a lawyer who's on our case who though our own flesh and the enemy accuses us, he declares us righteous before God because he's put his righteousness on our account. But notice in the story, look back at it, God doesn't change his method or his message. He still calls for Jonah to declare his message, his word to Nineveh. Not his opinion of them, not his judgment on them, he was to declare God's message. Look at it, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you to. He says, arise and go. Interestingly, that word go is two Hebrew words, and it's, it's an imperative. It's like, go right now. Don't monkey around anymore. And I think sometimes God says it to us. All right, it's time to get going with what God has called you to in your families. Maybe God's called you to make some changes in His time. Of all times during this pandemic, this is the time to begin to see God bring some change inside of us. And then He says, go to Nineveh, that great city. Why would He call Nineveh great? Nineveh was known in the whole region as being the most evil, the most cruel city in the entire Assyrian Empire. I was reading some of the accounts this morning. I won't say them because we have children present, but some of the horrible evil and the cruelty they did was just unimaginable. Beyond anything that we have read about from Nazi Germany, it, it makes that pale in comparison. 
And he says, I want you to go to that great city. Why great? Well, because they were like the epicenter of the culture of that whole region. They were great in influence, great in power, great in size, great in geography. They were great. In fact, their king, his name was Sennacherib, their king had a home. Now, I'm not talking about the palace. I'm talking about a home. Their king had a home that was 16 times bigger than this building. That was just his home, not his palace. It was a great city. Verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Don't you love that when God speaks something to you and you just get up and you do it? You do what God says. Um, There was a time years ago, I can remember uh, my father-in-law, who was a former president of Elam, my father-in-law used to say, you can never put no and Lord in the same sentence. Because if He is your Lord, the only appropriate response is yes, Lord. Never no, Lord. Well, that's what Jonah did. Jonah, finally given a second chance, says, yes, Lord. Verse 4, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. When it says he began to enter, that's actually two Hebrew words. It's the Hebrew words kalel and baal. And it literally means to break down or to dissolve. And what God's Word is saying to us is that as Jonah began to step out in obedience to God, there's some things he had to let go of. There's some things he had to break off of himself in order to fulfill the Word of God. There's some prejudices he had. Some opinions he had that he needed to release. He had to untie himself from in order to be able to fulfill the mandate of God. This harkens back to the last chapter, chapter 2, verse 8, where it says something about worthless idols. Those who cling or are tied to worthless idols. Well, for Jonah, as we've looked at it, one of Jonah's idols was what's called nationalism. He believed that his people, who were the unique, special people of God, and they were, but he came so proud of it, became so proud of it, that he forgot that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Not just Israel, not just us, the United States of America, but God loves the whole world. And Jonah had forgotten about that, and he had to confront that in his own soul and let go of some prejudices he had against all other peoples that were beneath his consideration. In fact, the Scripture tells us in that same verse that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace of God that would have been theirs otherwise. Anything in this world system, please hear me, anything of this world that is more important to you than the kingdom of God is in a wrong place in your life. We are first and foremost people of the system. Before you are a citizen of the United States of America, and I honor that you well might be. Not everybody in this room is. But before you are a citizen of the United States of America or a citizen of any nation upon the earth, you need to remember that first and foremost, you're a citizen of the kingdom. This is about being kingdom-minded people. Every one of us, 
at some point in our lives need to realize that in order for us to follow God, we need to let some stuff go. We can't continue to walk the way we used to walk. God comes and he calls us to untie ourselves or to let that stuff dissolve of importance. Maybe for you it's a life plan. You, you had a life plan for your life. Can I tell you honestly, my life plan was never Warsaw. I can still remember in 1991 when we came to Warsaw, we came to preach on a Sunday morning and the elders had asked to meet with me. And when I got done, as far as I was concerned, I was done with Warsaw forever. I was living in Watertown. Watertown was growing leaps and bounds. It was a wonderful place to be. Everything was going great for us. And then I got to Pavilion in my car, driving home to Watertown, New York, and I felt like God said to me, you will be the next pastor of Warsaw. And I thought, I don't want to go someplace where they have more cows than they have people. That's not my idea of heaven. Sometimes you have to release your life plan for what God calls you to. For some of you, it, it's like you, you feel like life is going to hell in a handbasket these days. This pandemic, it's like you don't know what to think anymore. Sometimes we have to even let go of that kind of stuff in order to follow God. Maybe for you it's your reputation or your status. Or maybe for you, you're like Jonah. You need to let go of your nationalistic pride that forgets how much God loves every single person on planet Earth. None are beneath His love and His care. If we're going to follow God fully, Sometimes we have to let some stuff go in our lives. And that's what Jonah faced. For him to enter that city, he had to let go of somebody. But picture this though. Here is Jonah, an Israelite prophet. Have you guys ever been to New York City? Any of you guys ever been to New York City? Have you met Jews in New York City? You know, where their hair is a little bit different and they're wearing a little bit different outfit and they've got, you know, I don't even know. What, what do they call those castles? You know, they, they got stuff hanging on. You can recognize a Jew. Well, here's this Jewish prophet walking into Assyria, a place that hated and despised the Jews as much as the Jews hated and despised them. Here's this man. What do you think he was thinking as he's walking into Nineveh? I wonder how long I'll be able to keep my head. I wonder if there's a way for me to preach this message of God in a way that won't end up with my head separated from my body. So he began to come up with titles, just like we do. Three steps to a happier life, O Nineveh. Or, Nineveh, have you felt empty inside that killing people just isn't making you as happy as it used to? God has an answer for you. That's, I mean, come on, he was a normal guy. Surely he was thinking that way. But no, Jonah was called to preach what God told him to, and here's what he was told. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh, you shall be overthrown. Now that's a feel-good message, isn't it? Eight words in English, five words in Hebrew, and I don't know how many words in Assyrian. 40 days, and you will be overthrown. But the only thing Jonah had going for him at that point was he had a short sermon. That's it. Every single parishioner's prayer on a Sunday morning. Keep it short. 
In 40 days, you will be, the, the Hebrew word is hafakt. Hafakt. But, and please hear this, because the whole book actually hinges on this one word. We know one definition of this word. You will be hafakt. You will be overthrown. You will be destroyed. You will be overthrown. That's true. But the other meaning is you will be overturned. Or a, a better way of saying it is you will be turned around. And what God was telling Jonah to declare to them is you've got 40 days to decide. In 40 days you will either turn around or I will overthrow you. That was the message that Jonah was given. Something has to change. Either you will be destroyed or you will change one way or the other. A lot of times people get so upset when stuff happens to them. <coughs> Years ago, I can't remember who it is. Uh, I've got his face in my mind. I think it was Swindoll, I think. Used to say, you can pick, you can choose your behaviors, you can't choose the consequences. And I think a lot of times we forget it. We make choices and we get mad at God because we don't like the consequences, but they were our choices. That's kind of what God, through Jonah, is saying to Nineveh. You have a choice. Which is it going to be? Is it going to be overthrown? Or is it going to be overturned? God gives them that choice. <coughs> and notice that God's offer was a limited time offer. 40 days. You have 40 days to make this choice. Look at verse 5. So the people of Nineveh heard the message and they believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now think about it. Here is this Israelite prophet going into the enemy's camp, preaches the gospel, and they believe it. I mean, what, what would that be like today? That would be like the Kardashians and Justin Bieber and Kanye West all getting saved this year. Oh wait, no, that did happen. I'm sorry. It would be like um, it would be like going into Las Vegas, preaching the gospel, and every one of the casinos stopped all the gambling and all the betting and all the worldliness and they opened up their casinos to become churches of the living God. That's the kind of thing that happened here. That's how serious it was. They believed God. I don't know what they thought about Jonah, but they believed the Word of God. And they actually took action. It's not enough just to believe. You have to take action. The Scripture says they proclaimed a fast from the greatest to the least. And then they put sackcloth on. But that, that was the city. What about their leaders? Look at verse 6. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh. And here, we're not talking about Sennacherib, who was the king over the whole of the empire. We're talking about a local king who was over Nineveh. Much like King Herod was the king over Palestine, but Caesar Augustus was the king over the entire Roman Empire. So we're not talking about Sennacherib, we're talking about a local king. That king heard word, and he arose from his throne. Think about it. This is his position of authority, of power. He arose from his throne, laid aside his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Sackcloth, by the way, is like, most often it was like 
goat skin that was very hairy and coarse that was turned inside out and you would put it on so it chafed your skin. And then it says he sat in a pile of ashes demonstrating the depths of their repentance. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. What they were famous for. He says, stop doing it. Turn from that. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Basically, what he's saying is, let's turn our hearts toward God, lest he do for us what he did for Jonah. He gave Jonah a second chance. Maybe God will give us a second chance. Verse 10, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. In verse 1, God showed Jonah grace. In verse 10, God shows Nineveh grace. He gives each of them a second chance, a do-over. It says, by the way, God relented from the disaster, or some of your translations might say he repented. Normally, when we think of the word repentance, we think about a, a change of mind, a change of heart, and usually that has to do with a moral change. But we know God doesn't have to change his mind. God doesn't have any need for a moral shift within his character. God doesn't gain more knowledge that helps him to make decisions. God already knows everything. In fact, you do realize God has never once thought about anything. He doesn't have to think. He already knows it all from beginning to end. But when it says that he relented, what it's really saying is, He's responding to their decision. He gave them an ultimatum. He gave them a choice. They made their choice, and then he made his decision based upon what their choice was. It wasn't God that needed to change. It was Nineveh that needed to change. And because of that, God showed to them compassion and mercy. One of the hallmark songs and verses for Elam over all of these years is Lamentations 3 where it says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The book of Jonah is about really two things. It's about God's heart for His people. Aren't you grateful that God shows mercy to you? That God shows compassion to you? That when we fail, He doesn't give up on us? It was 1977, and it was the uh, week of prayer. I wasn't in a good place with God or with Elam. I didn't like a lot of stuff. I, I was struggling. And during the week of prayer, you're all supposed to gather upstairs in the tabernacle at the time, guys on one side, girls on the other side, so you're not distracted, although that never worked. But either way... Um, <laughs> We're supposed to be gathered. I hid out in my room for the entire week reading Louis L'Amour Westerns. Never went up once. Until the final night. That's the night they do communion. You know, it's like a culmination of the whole week. I'm sitting in my room, which was the room right underneath the stairwell in the tabernacle. 
I'm sitting in my room, and there's a knock at my door. And I'm thinking, uh-oh. I mean, I'm not stupid. If somebody's knocking on my door, it's probably not good. I opened the door, and there stood Paul Johansson and the dean of men. And they said, we've noticed that you uh, have been strangely absent throughout this week. We would like to invite you to come on up to the service for the final night. So I said, okay, and so I had to change because I was just much like this, but back then we had to wear, you know, a tie and jacket. So I put that on, and I started to go up, and I was going to go up the stairs there at the front of the tab. And Paul Joe said, uh, no, why don't you come with us? And they took me down the long hallway and up the back stairs to the platform where I sat between Paul Joe and the Dean of Men for the rest of that service. But here's why I'm telling you the story, not because I was so bad. You all know that. It doesn't get any better than this. It never does. Outside of the mercy of God, God, it's got to be you or nothing. Um, I can remember, though, there was a time for prayer before we went to communion. And Paul Joe got on his knees, put his face on his chair, and I can still remember him weeping, saying, God, don't give up on me. And don't give up on this young man. Paul Joe could easily have been so angry. He could have been like Noah, or like Jonah, rather. He could have been like Jonah, who, who just despised you know, this, this young rebel who doesn't know anything. But he had a heart for me that reflected God's heart. As the people of God, this story tells us God loves us. He gives us a second chance. When we blow it, which we all do, I've blown it big time, and probably so have you. Not an oops, but an oh my. God still loves us. And he took into consideration every bit of our failures and our weaknesses when he loved us and called us. That's the story of Jonah. But that's not the only story of Jonah. The rest of the story of Jonah is that God has a heart for the whole world. Do you know that God loves everyone? He doesn't love you more than them. He loves all of us. He is the God of all love. He can't love less than God. God loves President Trump and He loves Nancy Pelosi. He loves Chuck Schumer. He loves the Supreme Court when they make a decision that you don't agree on. God loves the whole world. And that's the story of Jonah. And my question to you this morning is, Number one, have you experienced God's love? Do you know how much God loves you? Not just theoretically, not just intellectually, but have you experienced God's love for you? Has it been so overwhelming that even the thought of it undoes you inside? People ask me, all during the uh, renewal, which was just a, an amazing time in God's presence, they ask me, everybody else is laughing, why are you weeping? I said, because every time I experience his presence, I'm just so amazed that he would come close to me. Always astonishes me. Have you experienced the love of God in that way? That just causes your insides to vibrate inside of you and you, you can't hold it together. But have you also experienced God's love for the world? We've had the privilege of traveling the world and experiencing different cultures, different peoples. In every place we've gone, we have felt God's heart for them. 
Joshua, who is another Old Testament saint, as some of you would know, he has a book written by his name. Joshua, at one occasion, was going in to do battle against a city by the name of Jericho, much like Jonah was going in to preach to Nineveh. On the way there, Joshua meets this being. And he says to this being, are you on our side or are you on our adversary side? And I loved what this being says. He says, neither. I'm here to ask, are you on my side? And my question to you this morning is, are you on the Lord's side? Or have you allowed nationalism, national pride, to eclipse your realization of God's love for the nations of this world and for all peoples? You know, God loves us. But do you know God also loves Warsaw? Do you know that? The people in Warsaw, even some of those people who drive you nuts, because why won't they open the pool at the park? Why won't they pave that road without deep potholes? God loves them every bit as much as He loves you. Have you developed an us or them mentality? I don't even know who us and them is for you. But in God, He loves all. That's the message of Jonah. Mercy is actually God's second chance to us. Would you just bow your heads for a moment? I want to give you the opportunity just to cry out to God in your own hearts and say, God, I've been just surviving. I've been getting along. But God, I desperately need to encounter you today. To experience the reality of your presence. And Father, I'm asking you, the Holy One of Israel, but the God who loved the world so much that He gave His only Son, Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to quicken hearts today with your presence. Quicken my heart. Make me more aware of you, Jesus. And make my friends ever increasingly aware of your presence. Just take a moment and press into the Lord. Let Him whisper in your heart. And while you're there, ask God to give you a heart his heart for all people. Ask him to cause you to love like he loves. That while the world is picking sides, drawing lines in the sand, God, give us your heart for everyone that we're not socially distancing in our hearts from people. Let that be our realization today. Help us to love like you love. Lord, our, our vision statement, our mission, is to love God, love people, and love Warsaw. For everyone in this room, it's love the people where you are. Love them. 
And Father, throughout our weeks, let us respond to you and to what you place upon our hearts. Unlike Jonah did initially, let us respond by saying, Yes, Lord, send me. Send me, O God. To the nations, yes, but to the nation that's right gathered around me in my neighborhood, to my neighbors. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let our weeks reflect the love of God instead of sectarianism and nationalism. That we remember constantly that we are the people of God. I pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I want to just take like another five minutes if I can, and I want to remind you, because some of you maybe haven't watched Facebook and the video that uh, Pastor John and Ben made. So I wanted just to clarify, even some of you coming in today, you, you showed up and things were a little bit different. So I just wanted to mention to you that whether you realize it or not, this past week, um, there has come into existence a new law. And the new law basically says that in public gatherings of any kind, whether it be inside or even outside, in public gatherings where there is not the possibility of safe distancing, which is six feet or more, then we by mandate, by law, are to wear masks. So part of the reason why we're asking you to come in in an orderly fashion and sit in the front working our way back is so that we can keep everybody at a safe distance, and that way you don't have to wear a mask if you don't want to. If you would prefer to wear a mask, that's fine. We honor that as well. To us, it's not a matter of just obeying the letter of the law. It's not a matter of fear. It's a matter of love for one another. Out of concern for each person, not knowing what each one is dealing with. Some might have compromised health systems. We don't know always what's going on for every single one of you, we want to then honor you by doing that which might seem uncomfortable, might seem uh, even unnecessary. We want to honor you by loving you in that way. Paul at one point said, you know, and, and this is my paraphrase, if my eating meat offends you, I will never eat meat again for the rest of my life. That's how much Paul loved people. And my question to you is, can you help us as leaders, knowing that not everybody's going to agree with every decision we make, can you help us as leaders to try to love people that much? To love them by honoring, yes, the law, but let's honor the spirit of the law, which is to make people feel safe and actually be safe. What that means is once you get into your seat, you don't have to keep your mask on if you don't want in fact, if you're coming in and you're staying six feet away, you don't even have to wear your masks in. That's your decision. We're going to let you do that. The one caveat that the law has made very clear, though, is if you're going to get out of your seat and go to talk to somebody or to even go use the restroom, you have to put your mask on. And again, we know it's uncomfortable. I don't like the masks any more than you do. They're, they're hot, and they make breathing a little bit more of a challenge. But I will do what I have to so that we can demonstrate love to one another and so that we can gather together and worship God together, hearing His Word together. We get to do this. There are places around the world and around the nation that aren't. We get to do this. 
So instead of making this our battleground, let's make the gospel our rallying cry. Okay? So I know some of you might not agree with us. I understand that. I honor the different beliefs, different things. That's why God gave us all kinds of members in the body, and some are different. But we can at least agree to hold together the spirit of peace and the unity of his presence. So what we're going to do now is we're actually going to dismiss you, and this is going to look a little bit weird. We're actually going to have the ushers come in and dismiss you by rows, much like we would in a wedding. You don't get mad about it at a wedding. It's like, okay, we'll do it. And if you do it at a wedding, repent. Um, I'm kidding. We're going to dismiss you by rows, and they'll start with the back and go out. Once you're outside the doors, go ahead and take all the time you want to have fellowship with one another, okay? That's outside of our confines. Go ahead, Usher.